imagine this. <laughs> Are you imagining it? You're sitting on the veranda of a luxury home that you own, looking out over San Francisco Bay years ago. Uh, you have stuff. You have a home the size of Luxembourg, uh, a speedboat on the jetty, and you have honor. You have kudos among those you know. A reputation esteemed in the eyes of all, the appreciation of all that you do for all your philanthropic deeds. You've got stuff, you've got reputation, kudos and wealth. Nice thought, isn't it? But as you're sitting there on your veranda, you see smoke rising from a rocky island dwelling in the bay. Alcatraz is on fire. Alcatraz, that high security prison for the undesirables, the vile offenders live there, including dangerous thugs in this scenario who once mugged you and brought you harm. Uh, a binoculared look reveals half the island screaming at the realization of their doom, but half the island sitting unwitting awaiting certain doom. You drop the binoculars to look down at your speedboat. The name emblazoned on the side seems more vivid than it ever has before. Salvation. What do you do? You can stay where you are and let the criminals, the undesirables die or leave everything you have to help the undesirables live. What would you do? One or two, please choose two, because that's what Christmas is actually about. You see, the Christmas story is actually the upscaled reality behind the small-scale illustration that I've just used. It's all about Jesus Christ and the absolutely incredible things that he has done. I am not believing for a second that we can sing songs of the like we have sung tonight and not just marvel at the, the poetic conciseness of what we are singing, but the fundamental truths that lie behind it, the acts that we are praising God for. It's all about Christ. And specifically tonight, I want us to be thinking about, in these few moments, what he lays down and what he takes up and what that means for us. What he lays down, what he takes up, and to realize even that the two are absolutely inseparable because what he leaves behind and what he lays down makes what he comes to do and makes what he takes up even more wonderful than we've ever imagined. And I want to show you this from Philippians chapter 2. Now, Philippians chapter 2 is not your usual Christmas passage. There are no mangers, no stars, no shepherds. No, it starts further back than that. This is years BC, somewhere in heaven, that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Essentially, it is like a backstage pass on the greatest revelation of God himself that we see at Bethlehem. And here's what we read. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, let's look first of all then, shall we, at what Jesus lays down. And it's not hard to see from this passage that he lays down, if you like, the glory of heaven. Verses 5 and 6 for us in here are all about identifying for us the one who became the Bethlehem baby. Verse 5, first of all, tells us that Jesus is a king. We don't need Kanye to tell us this. It's right here in no uncertain terms. Paul, the writer in verse 5, calls him Christ Jesus. Christ is a title. Christ means king, which means that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus is the ruler over all things. But he's more than just a king. Verse 6 goes on to say that Jesus is God. He is deity. He is in very nature God, which means he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He holds all the patents to all that has been made. Power and authority are his. Judgment is his prerogative. And praise and glory are his. He is supreme over all, to be esteemed as the most supreme being in all existence, the one to whom all praise is due. Indeed, a cursory glance in other parts of the Bible, God's word says, heaven adores him. Heaven makes much of him. Heaven rightly glorifies him. Now revisit our imaginary introduction when we had both stuff and reputation, luxury and honor. But the highest esteem and the greatest privileges that we might have in that scenario are nothing compared to what this king, this sovereign, this ruler gave up to leave his heavenly abode for our hellish earth. To leave heaven's praises even for humanity's devilish abuse. That's what he experienced. It makes his coming, the act of choosing to come, all the greater, doesn't it? Truly, it is what we've sung already, mild he lays his glory by. But verse 6 not only identifies for us the one who became the Bethlehem baby, it presses deep into the heart of why he came. And indeed, verse 6 actually reveals why he came. It reveals God's heart. He did not consider equality with God, as it says, something to be used to his own advantage. Now, that's an incredible thing to read. Because power, you see, for people like us is usually selfish. From the baby creche to a boardroom, if you give someone power, they wield it for their own gain. 
were fundamentally self-seeking, selfish sovereigns, manipulative type of people. Or is that just me? But herein lies the great heart of God celebrated at Christmas. Jesus didn't look at his own rights and privileges. Jesus didn't look at his own godness as something for him, but as something for you. And there's a word for that. It's called love. Sacrificing something for others. It's humility. It's love. And that's the heart of God at Christmas. That's what we get from this insight into the backstage goings on before Christ came at Bethlehem. Well, that's what he lays down. What does he then take up? Well, it tells us he takes up our humanity. Verse 7 says that the sovereign of heaven became a servant on earth. He didn't just come to be with us. Indeed, he became one of us. As verse 7 says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And herein lies this great doctrine of the incarnation of God taking on flesh. God became a man. He wasn't any less God for coming. Nothing was subtracted from him. He didn't swap his deity for humanity. Nothing was exchanged in this act. In his deity, he became a man. Indeed, two natures in one person. Truly God, as his miracles show. Read any of the four Gospels. Truly man, as his weakness shows, and indeed as his death demonstrates. Now, if verse 7 says that God stooped, verse 8 in Philippians 2 goes on to tell us how far. It tells us what he did with this humanity. Being found in appearance as a man, Paul writes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. A cross. The sovereign one subjected himself to the judicial, even incompetence, of governments and rules that he had established, according to his own sovereignty. You see, it wasn't just his rights as heaven's son that he laid down, it was actually his life. It was no suicide mission, of course, it was a saving mission. Dying in the place of sinners like us, paying the penalty for the sins that we are due to pay. Like our um, San Franciscan daydream from the start, setting foot on Alcatraz would mean that you existed among the undesirables and the vile offenders, but they're the ones in danger. They're the ones who live as self-appointed sovereigns. They, like us, we're the ones who write our own rules. We're the ones who act, whose acts are like a stench in God's nostrils, whether we recognize our doom or not. But we're the ones he came for. And his death shows how far he would go to show us the extent of his love. Now, the ultimate purpose of this passage is actually super clear for us. For those who believe the gospel already, and for those who are not yet believers, but who are thinking about it. For Christians, 
the application is so, so simple. It is to lay yourself down in humble service of others. That's what verses 1 to 4 highlight for us in the context. Since Jesus, our Lord, willingly left such a height to stoop so low for the sake of others, surely we can muster enough humility and sacrificial love to do that for others on much smaller scales. We ought to be the most loving people on earth if we follow the example of Christ, our God of love. And for those of us who aren't Christians, this is quite simple. The Philippians 2 helps you see what Christmas cost Jesus. Christmas is very costly for many of us spending rockets at this time of year. But Christmas will never be as costly for anyone in humanity as much as it was for Christ. It cost him his life. And it's to help you see, passages like this are designed to help us see that we ought to love Christ for the rescue he provides for us. Look at his love for humanity. Look at what he lays down, the glory of heaven. Look at what he takes up, the nature of man. And look at how God the Father responds to this incredible laying down and this incredible taking up. In verses 9 to 11, God the Father thinks that that act is so wonderful that he exalts Jesus. He takes the one who made himself low, so low, and makes him high, so positionally high, and gives him what he's due. More praise, higher praise even, greater glory than before, and calls for a day to come when the admission of Christ as God and Savior and Lord will be on everyone's lips. They'll say, yes, you are Lord, you're God indeed. And those who say on that day what they've believed in this life will be able to say that with great joy, Jesus is Lord. But those who will say it, having not said it in this life, and having missed the opportunity to say it in this life, will acknowledge it in great fear with the prospect even of judgment. So the call of Philippians 2, as we see what Jesus lays down and what Jesus takes up for Christmas to happen, the call for those who have not yet believed, is to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. It is to be rescued by him. See yourself in your sinful state and see his love and the great extent of it. If you're here and you're a guest, we'd love for you to go away with a little book called The Gift. There are some of these by the Connect Corner on the way out where the sofas are. Please do pick up one of these little books and read that over Christmas time. Why don't you talk to the person who brought you about the things we've been thinking about tonight? 
or maybe you'd like to look into this in a little bit more detail, uh, we are actually going to start looking through in a little group of folks who are similarly inclined to explore what Christianity is all about. We're going to be getting together in the new year to look through the Gospel of Mark, one of the accounts of the life of Jesus to figure out who is he, why did he come, what did he come to do, and explore that in a bit more detail. If you'd like to be a part of that, you are more than welcome. Again, just ask at the Connect Corner. But this Christmas time, let's not forget what Jesus lays down and what Jesus takes up. Remembering that Jesus didn't look at his godness as something for him, but as something for you. Let's pray together.